Welcome to Matter of Fat, a body positive podcast with Midwest sensibilities. Hi, I'm Kat Palavoda, a local fat feminist, shop owner, and a bronchitis battling babe. I'm joined by my co-host and producer, Soraya Bogani. Hi, I'm Soraya. I'm a fat, multiracial, Minneapolitan, millennial jet setter. Yes. On Matter of Fat, we're here to talk about the cultural politics of fat bodies in Minneapolis, St. Paul, and the greater Midwest. This episode of Matter of Fat is brought to you by Superfit Hero. Yes, we're so excited to have Superfit Hero as a Matter of Fat sponsor because we know that Superfit Hero is such a fave with so many of you. This woman-owned brand is on a mission to make fitness more inclusive with premium activewear in sizes extra small to 5XL. Our listeners can use code FAT to save 15% off Superfit Superfit Hero's leggings with pockets, shorts, and sports bras. Visit superfithero.com to see their full selection and to use our code FAT. We tried out the Superfits and can't wait to tell you what we think about them in the fat dish. Ooh, and it's about time to head into that fab fat newsworthy dish. It's been forever. Let's do it. It's the, the fat, fat dish. It's time for the fat dish, where we share or dish about what's going on in our community and personally. Like you heard in our last ep, we're looking forward to Take It Off, a fat burlesque review put on by my shop, Cake Plus Size Resale, and the Rose Academy of Burlesque, which is owned by Diva Rose, who was on the pod earlier this season. Love a good burlesque show. Love a fat burlesque show. Yeah, and this one is exclusively fat performers, which is pretty rare. It's such a great group, including several fat burlesquers of note from all over the country. It's taking place on Saturday, November 23rd at the Poor House downtown. Tickets are available on their website, which is P-O-U-R-H-O-U-S-E-M-P-L-S dot com. Matter of Fat is excited to be a sponsor of this event, and we look forward to seeing you there. Another piece for this episode's dish is about Small Business Saturday. So it's coming up really quick. It's the immediate Saturday after Thanksgiving and falls on November 30th this year. So what a great way to support the many businesses in your community and share the love with friends and family. And Kat, I imagine Cake will be doing something for SBS. Give the people the deets. Oh yeah, so we've got sales and cake pops and giveaways and the best part is that we donate 20% of our Small Business Saturday sales to buy coats for folks in need through the Supercoat Fund. That's really lovely. How did the idea come about? Oh, we've just been doing it for the last three years. It's I think it's because we have such amazing customers who are cool with like no store-wide sale, but instead uh, make it possible for us to donate that portion that we would maybe would have in a sale. Um, it's one of the busiest days of the year, and so we can share that money with folks in need. Okay, but what is the Supercoat Fund? Because I've seen a lot about it on social, but tell me more. Yeah, so the Supercoat Fund is this project coordinated by Hannah from the Big Fat Super Swap um, through donations that are generated mainly through the Big Fat Super Swaps, Cake, and some individual donors. The Supercoat Fund buys new coats for plus-size folks in need. So if you want to find out more about this or if you want to request a coat or if you'd like to donate – Visit the Big Fat Super Swap's Facebook or Instagram to find the posts about the Supercoat Fund. Mm, very timely because burr. Right. Yeah, yeah. Also, Real Life Coffee and Yoga is celebrating their first Small Business Saturday. And we're going to start a thread in our Friends and Fans Facebook group to list all the best local small businesses folks will be supporting that day. Awesome. I can't wait to see what people post. Same, same, same. Um, all right, Cat Daddy. What? Da- <laughs> okay, I tried it. And I hated it. Cat Daddy, it's not. No, I don't think it's going to take no. off. 
cat. What else is on the fat dish docket today? Okay, we need to share more about our season two finale celebration. Y'all were asking, so we delivered. Last year, we loved our end of season celebration. We saw so many of you there. And this year, we're happy to do another celebration, but a little more chill this time. Yeah, we're celebrating the end of our second season with a little get together at La Doña Cerveceria. You know, we're there all the time. All the time. But it's very low key. It's just a chance to mix and mingle with us, other matter of fat listeners, friends, and maybe even some past guests. Yes. Plus, our fave, K-Tal Street Eats, will be there serving up delicious pupusas uh, and other great eats. So y'all should stop by between 3 and 6 p.m. Sunday, December 1st. Hope you join us. We'd love to see you there. Oh, I'm really looking forward to this. Okay, and Soraya, it's been so long since we've had a proper catch-up during the fat dish. I cannot wait to hear what's been going on with you. Ain't that the truth? I think we'll have to catch up after a break from our sponsor. This episode of Matter of Fat is brought to you by Superfit Hero. As Kat mentioned earlier, Superfit Hero is a woman-founded and run business. We at Matter of Fat are excited to talk about an organization with a mission to make fitness more inclusive by creating athletic wear in sizes 0 to 30. Yes, for that size range. Yes, it's a big deal since we know that people want to feel comfortable and have access to well-crafted clothing. So we tried the Superfit Pocket Capris and the Sport Crop Bra so we could share our feedback. And we got the exact same super fits, <laughs> same color sports bra, same color capris. We had to do it to them. We had to. Matching and honestly, everything. We've matched before, so it's not that weird. <laughs> <laughs> we've matched before. This was a new, a new iteration of yeah. that. Um, personally, I've had lots of leggings and sports bras before, none of them matching my friends. Uh, <laughs> but I will say that. Some of them fall into regular rotation and others sit in the drawer for oh like gosh, way too long. Same. And it really comes down to the details for me. So I haven't worn a capri pant in a minute, but I felt so supported and comfortable in it. The fabric was thick and you couldn't see through it, which honestly, like I'm out here trying to live my life. I'm not trying to put on a show for anybody. <laughs> um, and the fabric wasn't rough or like slippery. It was more soft and strong. Yeah. And I really dug. Okay. So the waistband was wider than most others I've tried, which is good because I like to really pull it up there same same <laughs> same, same same um and this allowed for that I also wasn't worried that it would fall down while walking around or even doing yoga and okay let's talk about the sport crop bra yes. it felt like a crop top truly the band was snug and I was fully covered the whole time I felt like I could just wear it out and about or under some other layers and for all my people out there who have had the layer bras out uh, to like feel more secure mm-hmm. like nothing was gonna pop I personally didn't need to do it with this crop also, I felt comfortable enough to rock the Superfit without an additional shirt or tank, which lent itself to some great big belly energy. Yes, yes. Which is awesome. And something that I'm new to. I'm not always comfortable doing that. So that was exciting. Yeah. Uh, Kat, what did you think about the Superfit? I really liked it. And I'm really impressed with Superfit Hero. So you know I love an athleisure look, or as I sometimes call it, Fat leisure. Excellent. The pieces we tried were great for working out or everyday wear, especially the bra, which you mentioned is like you could be it can be styled as a crop um, in a really cute way. I loved how the leggings felt sturdy and like a very nice quality, but still soft and comfy, not see through. Not see through. Um, and just it's nice to have leggings with pockets. I'm here for that. I like shoved my hands in the pockets, <laughs> like they're perfect hand size. They also held my phone really well and, and very securely. securely. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. 
I felt like the leggings were really true to size too, like when compared to other leggings that I wear, because I find myself often like between a 2X and a 3X and basically every legging, every legging, the sizes of every leggings I wear ever. Um, And the same was true here. So I tried the Capri legging in a 2X and also a 3X. And while both were very comfortable, the two was like a little snugger than I like and the three was a little roomier. So boo for me being you know between sizes but yay for the sizes being so consistent I think you'll know exactly what to expect and they of course have a really helpful size chart on their website okay I also need to share that I really love that Superfit Hero is showcasing people of all body sizes on their Instagram and in their marketing totally they're actively showing people in larger bodies their mission and values are present in their marketing and you know that's something I always want to see from brands plus like I know so many of you who stand for Superfit Hero so it's really fun to be able to try out some of these pieces for myself and now our listeners can save 15% with code FAT we got it for y'all yes. F-A-T visit superfithero.com to see their full selection and use our code FAT Okay, now Dish, what's going on with you, Soraya? So I recently got back from about a week-long trip to New York City. Oh my gosh, LA, New York, you are just jet-setting. Who is she? Um, So I stayed with the greatest friends ever in Astoria, which is in Queens, and just had easy access to wander around the city and explore museums, shops, parks, food, and caught a bunch of shows for the New York City Comedy Festival. What a cool time to be there. It was beautiful. It was fall in New York. The trees were gorgeous. Wandering around, you know, Central Park, just being able to walk around. It was the perfect temperature. It was like 70 degrees the first day there and then quickly went to 60, 50, like like trench coat, trench coat weather. Oh my gosh. It was jealous. Mm -hmm. And I really loved catching up with friends of the pod, Anna and Lothie. So I got to see them. I got to hang out with their adorable little dog, Franklin. He's I'm his He was on now. their holiday card a couple years As ago. As he should be. He is a model, <laughs> a little shih tzu. Um, and then I got to see some comedians that I've loved from afar for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And to be seeing them IRL was very special. So I saw Aparna Nanchurla, Joe Firestone, Maeve Higgins, Jabuki Young-White, and found some others that I'm really excited to see them come up and see what they have to do next. I feel like I've seen these people, too, because of your Instagram stories. You were really doing it for us. You were really, for your 12 followers, you were doing it. 13. 13 <laughs> followers. I am certified bad at social media. I say it on Twitter. I mean it here. I, like, don't have a wide following because I don't accept you don't want people. a wide following well if I don't know you yeah I don't follow that's you fair. and that's no shade I'm sure you have lovely things and I only ever post stories to a peace cat to stop Basically. making fun of me <laughs> <laughs> well especially when you travel we want to see what you're up to yeah so I did I there was a concerted effort there for the stories and I think it, was it came very out well done Thank very you. well done so I recognize some of these folks from the stories that you shared and you take them you probably also recognized Hari Kanda do you remember when we saw him at the Cedar like two-ish years ago? Yeah. Oh, it was so great. He was so great. So he is one of my favorites. And I got to see his comedy set one night. And then I got to go see an interview between him and Lindy West, oh. which was amazing. So her book, The Witches Are Coming, released that Just week. And so the next day she had, we were in Chelsea. No, I don't know where we were. It doesn't matter. Somewhere in New York. We were somewhere in New York. (laughs) I just showed up where I needed to be. Um, And we got to see them in conversation. They've been friends forever, which I didn't realize. Like, I don't know what it is about Seattle, but it was popping out a lot of good people. Didn't you, like, mention him in Shrill? We're like, oh, yeah, that guy. 
Did she? Yeah, I'm pretty sure she mentioned it by name in Shrill. Oh, and I was like, the connection. Oh, in the book, in the, the book. webs we weave. Yes, yes. Oh, yeah, not in the series. That makes sense. I was like, <laughs> I've seen and read it so many times. It's all just my life now. Um, no, but <laughs> it was so much fun to see them. And we just kept the good times rolling because you and I, Kat, went to see Lindy at the Fitz. Yes, this week. It was uh, so much fun. It was the talking volume mm-hmm. set up. And it was really nice to see like a pivot from what that conversation with her and Hari was because they really set it up to do like banter and a little bit of a reading and mm-hmm. some music. And honestly, it just comes back to like audiobooks. Yeah. I don't know. I don't think you expected this to happen where I pivot back to audiobooks. Mm-hmm. It's usually you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whoa. But like listening to The Witches Are Coming. Because we both listen to the audiobook version yeah. of The Witches Are Coming. And yeah. Because like, Lindy reads it. Her writing is so much her voice, yeah. right? You can read it and you get it. It's hilarious. It's clear and funny and irreverent. But then, you know, you listen to it and it just comes through on another level. Yeah. But so yeah. good. So there's a lot of Lindy in my life, a lot of New York. That's kind of what's going on. But what's uh, what's new and popping with you? I mean, besides being sick for the longest oh, amount of time in my adult no, life, not a baby. whole lot. No, actually, a lot's been going on, and I am feeling much better. Like, well, it's I'm on I'm on the road to recovery. <laughs> I'm a little bit of a wimp, but like I really have been sick for kind of a long time. Um, okay. Big things in my world. A few weeks ago, I went to an event called Pitch Fest, put on by this group called the Power of 100 MSP. So the idea is that 100 people give $100 each, and then the nonprofit who makes the most compelling pitch gets $10,000. Okay, so I'm going to make a very bad connection, Do but it. This, this seems like a worthwhile version of Shark Tank to me. Oh, yeah. I loathe Shark Tank, and I've watched like too many episodes of it, so this sounds amazing. It was awesome. Uh, and friend of the pod, Andrea Sano, came with me. She was an excellent date. I bet. There were yummy eats. There were super sweet folks there. There were great pitches from three amazing nonprofits, and Cake was a sponsor. So it was like a little added excitement for me. Oh, that sounds amazing. Like a perfect evening. It was um, good. Which organization had the best pitch? Okay. So all three that were represented were great. They were Voices for Racial... Whoa. Voices for Racial Justice... Family Tree Clinic, and Women for Political Change. So they were all really good. I mean, I always stand for Family Tree Clinic, especially because of their bold statements around health at every size. But the winner for this event was actually who I voted for as well, um, and it was Women for Political Change. They're amazing. They're an organization of women and those from historically marginalized gender identities. So like lots of young women and college women and like people in the early 20s. They're doing incredible work, holistically investing in the leadership and political power of young women and trans and non-binary individuals throughout Minnesota. I'm just like so happy to know about this amazing organization and excited to support them in the future. A hundred percent. That is amazing. I would never have known about them. And now we can link them out so our listeners can know about them too. Yes. Okay. Something else that I feel like I have to share I'm feeling more festive than usual this holiday season. No Grinch status for you? No, zero Grinch status. Okay, I think it's because Sydney, my assistant manager at Cake, is obsessed with Christmas and also like non-religious holiday joy. Uh, I think it's wearing off on me. And I mean, okay, so like since the shop opened, I've been really into like the holiday shopping kind of spirit. Like we always have a big Small Business Saturday thing like we discussed. And I joke that Small Business Saturday 
hashtag is my Super Bowl. Oh my god! <laughs> like I prepared all year for this. Um, and then this year we're also doing like a fun holiday market at the shop. But something about this time of year, I'm just feeling really like fun and in the spirit of the season. That's exciting. So I have to ask a clarifying question oh, that yeah. many of our listeners want to know. Does your small business Saturday, Saturday include puppies a la the Puppy Bowl? I have no idea what the Puppy Bowl you is. Don't, you <laughs> don't know what the Puppy <laughs> Bowl the puppy is. Bowl. Okay, I, I wouldn't expect there to be a puppy bowl at Small Business Saturday. But since it's hashtag it's, is my Super Bowl. <laughs> hashtag this is not my Super Bowl because my Super Bowl includes a room full of puppies. Amazing. Duking it out for an award. I don't actually know. Like what, I just tune in occasionally okay. and they're just like puppies are running around. Oh my gosh. Uh, unfortunately, no puppies at cake okay. on Small Business Saturday, but um, they'll be me going hard. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, fair enough. Oh, okay. One more thing I think I should mention yes. in our updates actually is a little bit of a joint update, which is uh, one of the bigger things that happened recently was that that TPT piece I was featured in came out. Yes. So it was a TPT original focusing on my work with cake and our work here on Matter of Fat. And I was pleased. So it, like, it came out. It's about eight minutes long, which is so like amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and Matter of fact, got a lot of screen time, which I thought yes. was so fun. You were in it so much, Saraya. Too I much. love it. No, not yeah, too much. Never I was very much. surprised. I was like, when is it going to pan away? When I, is it When is it going to go away from me? I loved it. Yeah, because the crew joined us in the KFA station, and it was really great, but also like very meta yeah. because we'll take the odd photo every now and then and like maybe a quick Facebook Live, right? But I became so conscientious of what I look like while recording instead of just considering the sound and... I don't know. It doesn't matter. I didn't need to say that. But it was really fun and a nice way to consider what we do on the podcast. And it was just really well put together. It was so well put together. Diana, who produced it, did such an amazing job. We will also link that in our show notes in case you haven't seen it already. So you can check it out. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with that, I think that's all we've got for today's Fat Dish. Yeah, let's dive into the interview. We are so, 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 so excited to share our interview with Sonali Rashatwar. We spent time with Sonali this summer when they did a workshop at Cake. I had been following them on social media for a long time and absolutely love the way they frame their thoughts around liberation. So when I heard that they'd be in Minnesota, I was so excited to attend the workshop and learn more. We actually got to interview Sonali right after the talk, and you might notice there's a little bit difference in the usual sound quality. You might overhear some planes, trains, automobiles. Well, maybe not all of that, but there's definitely some ambient sound. The bulk of our conversation with Sonali consisted of us basically gushing about the mind-blowing themes in their talk. They describe concepts with such wisdom and also like in a really accessible way, like this mix of wiseness with accessibility. So we feel so lucky to be able to share some of their amazingness with you in this interview. It was such a pleasure to learn a bit more about their background and story as a matter of fact. And instead of trying to capture the magic of their words, let's just get into it. Yeah. Sonali, we're so happy you're here with us. We were just at your event, and it was fantastic. Um, So we want to ask you what we ask all of our guests um, on our podcast, which is tell us your story as a matter of fat. First, I would love to thank you, Kat, for for hosting this workshop with me, um, featuring me tonight. (laughs) (laughs) I felt deeply honored and uh, grateful by the way that the audience received 
what I experienced and how I connect my lived experiences to the theoretical frameworks of ableism and anti-capitalism and fat phobia. Um, And that's what's so valuable when we are looking for scholars and we're looking for thought leaders and activists is we're looking for individuals who connect their lived experiences to those like theoretical frameworks. My story from a matter of fat lens um, begins around the ages of like eight, nine, and 10 being put on non-consensual diets by my parents Mm -hmm. and experiencing what was this like all-encompassing environment of food surveillance that followed me throughout the year. Like I think of uh, when me and my siblings were kids uh, after Halloween are like, hard-earned candy or like pillows pillowcases full of candy Mm -hmm. were confiscated and often they were hidden somewhere in the home Mm -hmm. and I'm the eldest child of three and so I'm like the creative problem solver I'm like the natural leader I'm like (laughs) the one who's like oh you're gonna put a passcode on the internet access I'm gonna figure out that (laughs) fucking passcode and so every year after Halloween I would find the Halloween candy I would find out where they were hidden And my sister was deputized into diet culture to, like, rat on me. Mm. And so she was, like, this food police um, that would be expected to tell my parents, uh, this is, she found it, and um, she was convinced that she was doing me a favor. My parents had convinced her that I was, like, self-harming by eating. And what's so sad, and I'm getting emotional because... That is just the nature of fat trauma and body image trauma. And what I call body image abuse is that for me, there was this like pervasive conversation of I'm harming myself by taking care of myself. I'm harming myself by compensating for the food that I wasn't receiving. I taught a workshop this afternoon at St. Olaf where I talked about actually like memories that came flooding back to me because what's so difficult in doing this work of like teaching your oppression is that you're like, oh fuck, I forgot about this thing that like really ties to this shit. And this like memory of having to run stairs came back to me where like before I was like welcome to the table or before it was like time to eat, I was expected to like run up up to the second floor and like come back down, like, run down to the basement and, like, come back up to the basement and, like, run back up the second floor. And I was expected to do, like, a certain number of those before, like, my food was earned and, like, those were not things that, like, my younger siblings were doing. Mm -hmm. And I think about how, like, gender has so much to do with it because my younger brother is four years younger than me and we look like fucking twins. (laughs) But the type of scrutiny that my body received Mm. was nothing I mean, actually, it was everything compared to what my brother received, which yeah. was nothing. Yeah. And all of that had to do with gender because at least within South Asian family systems, because I'll speak from experience, the way that my body was expected to be controlled was decided mostly by my gender because mm-hmm. my brother was not told the same lessons about, like, sex or, like, food consumption or, like, being worried about how people were going to treat him based on, like, skin tone or body size or, like, body hair my brother was never receiving those messages and it was entirely because of my gender and my body size. So my matter of fat story has entirely to do with growing up fat. 
the decisions that I made to resist my parents' indoctrination of me into diet culture and the decision to stay fat. Uh, so I even almost had weight loss surgery, mm. which uh, is a personal decision for me not to have done that. And I feel really good about actually not have, having done that. But it's, of course, never an indictment against others who have had it. But I call it a stomach amputation was what I almost had. Mm-hmm. And I call it an amputation really intentionally because we forget that we're cutting out actually super healthy tissue from our body will, willingly. And when I almost had weight loss surgery, it was seven years ago when I was like still being convinced by my parents that like conforming to societal standards could benefit me. Mm. And I was being promised these like great things like a sports car and I was being promised like oh we'll put you through grad school and we'll get you all the plastic surgery that you could want because of all the excess skin you're gonna have you're gonna look fantastic I was like promised all these like dreams but what it like also told me was that my body was like conditionally valued and like conditionally loved and I would never have realized that had I not had queer fat community around me to tell me that if your parents are so obsessed with me being married to a man and that it wouldn't be possible if I were fat, then it's okay to be like, so what? So what if I don't marry a man? Yeah. So what if I stay fat? So what if I'm partnered with somebody else of a different gender? Uh, the life, my world's not going to end. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. I might disappoint my parents, but my world's not going to end by disappointing them. I get to like live a life for me outside of that. Yeah. So appreciate the story you just told, um, like even relating to talking about the memories of running stairs and then getting access to food. And it's the same way, like you didn't get access to love or acceptance until you were willing to do and go through these different hoops and things like that. Oh gosh. It's just so cyclical in that way too. And it's like so sad. Yeah. Yeah. My sister who's so close to me, we're super close Mm -hmm. and it took us a long time to like unlearn that, um, cops and robbers dynamic that we had where she would like Mm. rat on me and I was like oh no I'm in trouble again Mm -hmm. (laughs) we're so close we're like white on rice so close Uh, I love her so much and she was one of the few individuals who was also able to question the impulse to go ahead forward and have stomach amputation surgery Mm -hmm. she was one of the few because in order to have weight loss surgery they they have these like seminars, like a hospital will have a surgeon and like a panel of, of individuals who like present information for potential surgery havers. And they'll like rent out this like large conference room and like, uh, there won't be any food there, which I think is so interesting. Mm-hmm. And they like educate these like mass groups of people to see who will like funnel through and like continue forward with, with treatment. And what happens in those spaces is that they often encourage families to come. So like a whole family will receive this education. Mm -hmm. And what was really good about my whole family going to that was that my sister saw it. I want to say it was like in the presentation itself, but it, it might, it might not have been, but regardless, my sister was the only one in my family who was concerned with the fact that one in 200 people die on the table having that surgery which is an astronomical number, yeah. one in 200. If one in 200 people died from having heart surgery, they would stop fucking mm-hmm. doing heart <laughs> surgery. <laughs> yeah. But we're still doing 
um, GI amputations because of fat phobia. Yeah. It sounds very like indoctrination-y, right? Being in that space and to have a crumb of like, oh no, let's like shake you back to reality here. She was the only one who was like, I'd rather have you alive and fat yeah. than dead and thin. Yeah. She was the only one in my family who, who said that. Mm-hmm. And it hurts because like my mom will never stop fucking dieting. She's on a new fucking fat diet. Yeah. And you know she can't stop talking about it because yeah. she's experiencing some weight loss. And there'll be something new six months from now. Yeah. And those are conversations I just can't have with my mom. Mm-hmm. I'm learning. Yeah. The learning piece is so key from, I mean, even what you just shared earlier tonight. I really love the imagery you said about plucking that from your brain and like replacing or replanting something else. Because, I mean, I've, I've talked about this with Kat quite a bit and, like, lots of other identities and pieces like that, but nothing that graphic has ever made sense to me. And I'm just curious, you know, you said this has been happening for, the like, the last seven years, years before that. Um, what are th- some things, like, recently for you that you've been plucking out and replanting? Mm. I know something that I'm still working on now is this way that I've... I've associated physical movement with punishment. Mm. So when I talk about the running stairs, I've had a really hard time thinking about physical movement as something that's joyful and something that I can access now. Like, I know that the way that I'm still rooting through my internalized fat phobia is the way that I exclude myself from public spaces and erase myself from public spaces because... I do fear judgment and I do still fear uh, the way people film and photograph my body in public spaces, Mm. which I experienced disproportionately in places like India and Nepal. Mm. So a couple years ago, three years ago, I was in India and Nepal with my family. In India, we were there for my family's wedding and in Nepal, we were like touring just as tourists. And the number of individuals that would point and laugh at my body, take out their cameras and film my body as if I like didn't have eyes and couldn't see them. Mm. Um, children would like follow me and like chase me, like as if I was like, I don't know, an animal or something. And what was even worse, right? So even worse than the experience itself of like experiencing over fat phobia is this like invisibility of it. Mm-hmm. Mm. My family was with me everywhere that these things happened in the airport at tourist spots and never did they acknowledge or like protect me or like shield Mm -hmm. me or say like I see that shit and it was wrong Mm -hmm. or like come stand over here next to me Mm -hmm. like some people are taking your photo and that's that's inappropriate Mm -hmm. I'm gonna block you yeah never was that shit happening right there's like this aloneness in the experience and so I do exclude myself from like gyms even though i deeply want to experience joyful movement i love a fucking fitness class yeah (laughs) i've always been like a lifter Mm -hmm. and i've always done personal training and i've i love feeling strong and i feel like i can't access spaces that feel like mainstream fitness spaces i was recently at like a restaurant where someone told me about this class that is it like mixes a soul cycle and like kickboxing 
and it's in the dark. Mm. And I was like, oh yeah, I think I can fuck with that. <laughs> because it's like a class and it's like dancey mm-hmm. and there's like kickboxing elements and there's like like loud like dance music mm-hmm. and you're in the fucking dark. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that might be like one of my entry points back into joyful movement. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. And the class is called Rumble oh. in Philly, or the gym is called Rumble. Oh, it feels like, like disrupted, yeah. you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm excited about that. Okay, so um, during your talk, there's uh, many things that you said that I'm, really have me thinking. But one of them was um, the idea, like you use science fiction to kind of get into it and mentioned like how we need to imagine a world um, free of fat phobia and other systems of oppression. Like we have to imagine it in order to get there. Um, and then just the way you were speaking about it, like it's for me akin to like goal setting. And actually you made that parallel too, right? Like if you can visualize yourself doing something, you're more likely to get it done. And I, I use that all the time, right? Like for myself and I encourage other people to do it in terms of goals. And also like, um, you know, like if you're like going on an interview or going on a first date, like in addition to like kind of giving your, or while you're giving yourself a little pep talk to like, imagine it going well, right? Cause we always assume the worst, right? But if you can imagine like being in that interview, being your best, right? Like that's just a very effective tool. Um, but I've never made that connection to think about it like big picture with the world and like how we can imagine, yeah, a world free of oppression. It really struck me. And I was wondering like, F, I've done a terrible job here of paraphrasing all this, but could you just share a little bit about that so our listeners could have a grasp of this just, yeah, this powerful way to view things. Also, it was not a terrible um, <laughs> description at all. It was actually perfect. Amazing. Well, thank you. <laughs> so in my workshops, I often use a disclaimer in order to allow folks the possibility of experiencing discomfort because we talk about upending really difficult concepts and remembering that like white supremacy is planted deep within us. Fat phobia is planted deep within us. Anti-blackness is planted deep within us. And we're always unlearning and like picking through the ways that we're actually still uh, mired within those constructs. And so I use that disclaimer, that quote by Walida Imarisha, who is a, a science fiction author, who's like a rad black author of science fiction. And a lot of those ideas come from grassroots organizing movements. So as a grassroots organizer, I imagine that when me and my collective activists are working together to envision a different future, that in itself is an act of radical imagining. Yeah. Right? We are radically imagining together. We are dreaming together what a future would look like. And the reason that I frame it as that is because I want us to expand what our imaginaries can encompass as liberatory frameworks. And I want us to expand and offer ourselves possibility models that we've never possibly considered before it's today. It's mind-blowing. This is mind-blowing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes. Actually, my mind, <laughs> so like the bounds of my mind, yes. and you, they have to expand to mm-hmm. include this and Throwing out the frameworks that already exist is so powerful and so invigorating, especially talking about accessibility. You're talking about like even writing, like reading people's works. It doesn't have to be that dense technological language to be able to have these it conversations. It shouldn't be actually because mm-hmm. it's not accessible. Right, exactly. Ugh. 
Yes. And when the, when academia or when institutions do that, it's a way of gatekeeping mm-hmm. who have yep. access to that knowledge and information. But grassroots organizers are always interested in making these conversations applicable to folks who are of working class backgrounds, mm-hmm. who are on the ground experiencing oppression. And words have power. Mm-hmm. Words have so much meaning. It is amazing to me as a facilitator and a radical educator to be standing at the front of the room and seeing the way people's eyes open up when I offer them language to describe experiences that they've had. Yeah. Because to say the word non-consensual diet and to see someone, it's like you can see the light bulb behind someone's eyes. And what they're offering themselves is a narrative that helps to describe oh shit, what I've survived was also abusive Mm -hmm. and what I've survived is also fat trauma and I don't have to be fat in order to experience fat phobia or fat trauma. We are all surviving and unlearning that shit together. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. This is just awesome. And kind of related, like, so what you referenced before, um, Sway, what you referenced... um, from the talk uh, about like plucking stories out and kind of replacing them with different things. Again, I've used that on a very personal level. Like, and I found it really effective to be like, okay, well, what stories am I telling myself? Like, okay, Mm -hmm. let's like rewrite those and like kind of um, be channeling these more positive stories instead. You're blowing my mind because these like things that I employ on a very regular basis in my life in terms of like what I'm up to, I'm now seeing like really have a lot of uh, space and power to think about things on a much bigger level. And that just feels very like doable. You know, you're already doing the work. Yeah, Yeah, you're already doing that. Yeah, and you said like, well, we were talking about white supremacy as being mundane, but the work you're doing, mundane and diurnal, Mm -hmm. so what you're doing on every day, and then can be applied to the bigger picture with an army of folks who are engaging in that. Yeah, and that's how the Western supremacy ends. Right. Yeah, that's how we make this shit accessible. As we remind folks, they're already doing that work already, Mm -hmm. and that's what I love about offering these like tangible skills as takeaways is that when we pull politicize them, we're able to see how they work in upending white supremacy. And we're able to see how actually, oh yeah, if I think about the process of decolonization, which, you know, today we were talking about it metaphorically, how we're like, you know, plucking this like idea as if it was like a feather in our skull within our brain and plucking out the feather and saying like, is this feather useful to me? And like scrutinizing it Mm -hmm. and looking at it critically and remembering that from our like sociology 101 glasses, everything is like socially constructed. And if that value or belief is no longer working for me, then like fuck that belief and (laughs) value. (laughs) And the greatest thing about social construction theory, I mean, I don't often use the word theory to describe these things, but like that is, it's theory. It's understanding that like, if that shit is not working for you, we can pluck it out. We can decolonize our minds Mm -hmm. and we can replant a totally different thought or belief or idea that includes us in it, that Mm -hmm. includes us within our radical, radical imaginaries to be and have like these fully formed lives that are fulfilling and full of love and pleasure and fatness and abundance Mm -hmm. and like excess and still be okay and worthy bodies. I really appreciated the workshop with how you scaffold it. And by that, I mean, you were very transparent with this is where we're going to go. These are our agenda points. This is we're going to stop here, take some time. And then the takeaways at the end, yeah, which like we're touching on right now, were so great because it, it can be overwhelming to be mm-hmm. confronted with all, all these ideas and figure out where I am on this like continuous spectrum of, of understanding my ideologies. But I think one of yours 
that was really cool was like find something that's nourishing and can you share the language for that takeaway? So are you thinking about the, like the fluffy kindness to yourself or that you, that we deserve pleasure? Yes. Yeah. And that our bodies are inherently worth pleasure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As a pleasure activist and a lot of these ideas are coming from the work of Adrienne Marie Brown, who's talking about pleasure activism in a much more mainstream way, but also from this like really grassroots disability justice, everybody has inherent worth way. Um, and also adding fat phobia to that um, intersection of understanding pleasure is this reminder that like capitalism is all often the root of what is telling us that we don't deserve rest and we don't deserve delicious food if we haven't earned it, if we've just been sitting and watching Netflix all day, that mm-hmm. we don't deserve like a delicious meal after that, like that really cares for us and nourishes us, mm-hmm. um, that we don't deserve fattening high calorie foods because those are things that we should deny ourselves. We should deny ourselves pleasure. Because we want to live the most productive, the most healthy, mm-hmm. the longest life possible. But like at, w- at what cost? Mm-hmm. At what cost to us as individuals? And so the fluffy takeaway response that I always want us to remember is that no matter what trauma we've survived, because all of us have always survived some type of trauma, we, we should not internalize this message that our bodies are damaged or broken or, mm-hmm. or unwhole or incomplete or part of some, you know, there's a better half of me out there somewhere. Mm-hmm. We should remember that our bodies are inherently worthy of pleasure no matter what's happened. And we deserve more pleasure even after we've watched Netflix all day. Mm-hmm. You still deserve to eat cake. That's fine. Yes. Um, you actually, it was a quote that you shared from um, one of like the many multiple quotes you have on your Instagram, which is amazing. Um, <laughs> but the idea that like this idea of body image abuse, right? And like the example you gave was like when you're in a romantic, re- this person was in a romantic relationship and you know went through a trauma, and then their partner was like, "I noticed you haven't been to the gym in a while, and like want to let you know, like probably not this verbatim, but like want to let you know if your body changes, like I don't want to be in this relationship." It reminded me of that this American Life Life episode yes. that they just. Oh. Oh, re-aired God. Oh, and how that one person like who lost like a great deal of weight was talking to her partner about who like her kind of her previous self and essentially her husband was like yeah I wouldn't have be I wouldn't be with you if you were fat like holy fuck like that's just that's so much you right to be on diet pills and yeah yes to earn my yeah yeah but this concept of like a body image abuse is am I saying that that's how you framed it right mm-hmm. was just really powerful could you talk about that a little bit yeah I love that fucking episode of this American life so good Um, about fat and the interview of Lindy West. What I love doing in these like mainstream conversations of anti-violence, because I've worked in the field of anti-violence for about eight years now, and that's a field that tackles issues like domestic violence, sexual violence, and human trafficking. Mm -hmm. So in these like mainstream sexual violence spaces, we're often thinking of abuse from this like really like uh, hetero lens, like men abuse women and most women, most women are in hetero relationships and, and we get stuck thinking of abuse in this like really physical way mm-hmm. where we only categorize like assault as the only type of sexual violence. Mm-hmm. And what I want us to do is expand this understanding of sexual violence because a sexual boundary violation is so much more than a penetrative assault. Right. A sexual boundary violation can also include someone taking off a condom midway through sex and not telling you yeah that's a boundary violation um what i also want to add are some of these experiences involving body image abuse that that are that affect the way we experience our bodies so when i was 
policed, when, when my food consumption was policed as a child, when I was told explicitly that my body had less value as a child, that's a form of sexual violence because when I internalize that, I believe that my body has inherently less value. And so for me personally, I believe that that influenced my decision to uh, leave an abusive home environment uh, to then become in an abusive relationship, mm. uh, which didn't last very long. Thankfully, it was like a year. I mean, it was pretty long, <laughs> a year and a half. <laughs> but what I internalized was this idea that I deserved that mistreatment. I deserved that sexual violence. I deserved this exploitation of my body because my body had less inherent value. Yeah. And so it made me more susceptible to also this experience of sexual violence because I understood that oh, well, that's the kind of, like, violence I'm seeing at home between my parents. So maybe this is normal. Maybe this is, like, the best I'm going to get. Because I'm assumed to be, like, less intellectual as a fat person, less desirable as a fat person, less uh, sexually desirable, less, like, friend. Like, I want to be your friend. I want to be around you. Mm. Um, I'm not seen as, like, someone who's desirable uh, within society, and so folks want to distance themselves from me. So in the workshop earlier, you were talking about how there is definitely room for more radical and political therapists and practitioners. I was curious, how did you choose social work as a way to engage in this? Mm. Um, Yeah, I'll just leave it like that. Social work for me was this opportunity to become a professional activist. And I was first exposed to the idea of social work because I had no idea what it was before I had Mm. even considered social work school and like going for graduate school to study social work. I had never considered it until I had met this a friend of mine who was in social work school, and she was studying to become a sex therapist. And her name's Chelsea. She lives in Colorado. We're still in touch. <laughs> and what she told me was that social work is actually this, like, universally applicable degree that uh, when you graduate, you can work in, like, a hospital and be a social worker. You could work for yourself and be, like, a radical educator and be a social worker. Um, I could educate doctors and dentists about whatever nonsense things they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> And do that as a social worker. I could work in a school system. I could work um, within government, even though, like, you know, fuck the government. And social work is, uh, I, I would be, like, able to have a job and support myself. And I could have these, like, really creative opportunities because I'm never only doing one thing. Mm-hmm. I've always had, like, multiple jobs. So I want to say, like, at my peak of working too much, I was juggling, like, four jobs at one time. Because I always do this freelancing stuff on the side. And that's not even including the social media upkeep. (laughs) Because maintaining a social media platform is like huge fucking work. I'm like too embarrassed to tell you. Okay, now I'm going to tell you because it's a fucking (laughs) podcast. Uh, It's super embarrassing, but my screen time uh, is measured on my iPhone, right? Like we can all see. And I I really appreciate it because it helps me to remember to detach. And to monitor when it is that I'm really on for a long time and like ask myself like, hmm, why the, why is that? Because I find that I am craving connection and social connection, but I'm staying in this like physically isolated space that's often like my own internalized fat phobia because I'm not wanting to get in my car and like go out and drive and get that takeout. Instead, I'm like sitting at home and ordering delivery or like not asking my friends like, hey, who's, who's up on like a Thursday night? Anyone want to like hang out and grab a beer? And instead of reaching out for those like social connections, I'm like scrolling on Instagram and also like not meeting that need that's yeah. actually still there. And so at my worst, I am on social media like eight hours mm-hmm. in a day. Like it's your job. Full like it's a sleep, fucking right? job. Yeah. Or yeah. full night sleep yeah. shit. 
six to eight hours is like a, is like a, is like a really heavy social media day for me. But it's also those days that I'm like curating content or I'm like writing a post because that mm-hmm. takes like an hour sometimes mm-hmm. to like really think about the verbiage that I want to use yeah. or like to put in the citations that I want to show so that folks have like additional reading material. But keeping a big platform is a lot of unpaid labor, but what I love about it is that it's also my marketing tool. So professionally, folks who approach me and want to work with me and become a client often have access to my ideas or my theory or my practice knowledge before they even approach me as a client because they're like, oh, I've read a lot of your posts or I've seen your reposts on Instagram. And it's helped me to understand that I would like to hire you as my mental health professional, which is wonderful. But it's a lot of work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so professionally, I chose to be a social worker because I got to have this like universally applicable job, but also social workers, like before I had gone to social work school, I got to read the social work code of ethics and it's universally applicable shit. Like if any of us were to read it, we'd be like, oh yeah, I'm down with that. Mm -hmm. I'm down for understanding that systems of oppression can need to be abolished and need to be eradicated in order for us to experience good things in life. And that's built into the social work code of ethics. That is not to say that all social workers are Mm anti-racist and critical of white supremacy or uh, working on unlearning fat phobia. Uh, The vast majority of social workers, based on my anecdotal experience of Mm -hmm. surviving graduate school with other problematic social workers, is that they're actually super invested in maintaining the current hierarchies and hegemonies Mm -hmm. and aren't actually invested in what I've what I imagine is this like truly intersectional understanding of how we abolish all of our oppressions by considering all of our liberation as being linked. Mm-hmm. And so um, me ending my fat phobia is linked with someone else's ending of their anti-blackness because together we would be tearing down white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Our liberation is connected just like our oppression is connected. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I That's something I've like thought about before but how you just phrased that like these are all yeah just like knowing that white supremacy is the enemy right and we're like taught to divide and conquer but like if we resist that they're like you know what can be torn down if we work together right yeah i mean we have to yeah that relationship piece the relation of it and meeting each other where we're at Mm -hmm. to kind of figure out how we work together to peel that back yeah yeah Social work school was impossible to survive, though. It was really difficult. That's what yeah. I wanted to ask, too, because to be a social worker, the oh. licensure that goes into it, the money that goes into mm-hmm. it, there's a lot of inaccessibility mm-hmm. for the people who are maybe already doing that work mm-hmm. without the... Um, the I title. Guess, f- the title, but also, like, the foundational information to help them be more efficient and more effective, too. So, like, what was that like going through that system? literally horrifying. Mm. I dropped out. I almost dropped out so many times. Um, and that's not just because women of color have such a high dropout rate from graduate programs and doctoral programs. That's also the case. But I was remembering that institutions, academic institutions, especially replicate these systems of violence and these systems of domination. Mm -hmm. They do not challenge it. Because uh, schools are businesses, Mm -hmm. they make money off of students failing Mm -hmm. courses, and they are not interested in ending those experiences. And so surviving social work school was so fucking traumatic because I started 
graduate school in like 2013, if you want to imagine what was happening back then, the rise of Black Lives Matter, uh, 2014, the assassination of Trayvon Martin, Mm -hmm. and the acquittal of George Zimmerman was also that summer of 2013. Mm -hmm. Um, 2014 was the Ferguson uprising um, and the militarization that we were seeing in Ferguson, Missouri. And these were conversations that were not translating to into my social work classrooms. Mm. But as a grassroots organizer, I was deeply invested in these conversations because that's the shit that I give a shit about. And so me, as someone who's like this eldest child, who's like always the self-interested, like natural leader, I'm like, I don't give a fuck what we're reading about right now, professor, whatever. Um, we're going to talk about what I give a shit about. And I'm going to find a way to make this lesson plan applicable to what I want to talk about. Mm-hmm. But what I was experiencing in my classrooms was so much pushback because a lot of my white classmates were like, um, you're a racist for talking about race. And I was like, mm. hmm. In a that. social work classroom? <laughs> like, come the fuck on! Or that I was racist for telling people that when we are talking about, like, if I were to tell you Um, imagine an actress, right? And I didn't tell you the person's race. What is the race of the actress that you imagined? I imagined Julia Roberts. White. Mm -hmm. Charlie's Theron, white. White. Mm -hmm. And so there's this, like, colonization of our imaginary where even when we imagine what an ideal actress would look like, we're imagining a white person. And so when I had said this in a classroom... They were like, oh, how dare you assume that I have this like, white supremacist imaginary? And I'm like, y'all, um, I have it too. Like, we all are struggling with we're it. We're all here. <laughs> we're on the same page. Yeah. I'm not trying to, like, position myself as someone who's, like, condescending or knows more than you or is more, mm-hmm. is more like, um, unlearned. I've, like, unlearned some of this mm-hmm. stuff more than you. It's not a woke competition. But there was, like, divisiveness just in naming race. Yeah. And it's actually really beautiful to enter education spaces now in 2019 and people want to talk about shit like this now that mm. I've been like, wow, finally it's the time. <laughs> I've been waiting so long and I'm just so glad that the people like, are ready for the conversation yeah. now. It was fucking difficult. So whenever I have folks of color especially come and talk to me and say, I want to do the work that you're doing. I want to go to grad school. I want to get my MSW. I'm like, you need to buckle up. You need to get... A community of people. Support network. Yep. That's so key. Because it is tough to survive on your own. I remember, like, the type of bullying that I was receiving um, was not just from my professors. Mm. Uh, it was also from my classmates. Um, for example, in social work school, there was another, there was one South Asian person who was also there. And she was um, an admin. And she was, like... Um, in the graduate program, in the, in the doctoral program, and I was in the master's program in social work. And the academics who were running the social work program explicitly told her she was not allowed to talk to me because I was a rabble rouser. And they knew that I was going to be like, oh my gosh, what are your fucking shitty racist experiences at this university? Yeah. Because I'm having a lot too. And guess what fucking happened? We became besties and we opened up our own social work practice. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> and the rest of history. The happiest ending. Yes. yes. We became rad social workers together and teamed up and opened up Radical yes. Therapy Center in Philadelphia. Yes. Amazing. Oh. Um, I, I just want to reference something that you did in telling that story that you did a lot during your talk, which was like um, 
to explain like, hey, I'm like still unlearning this stuff too. Um, and I like we all are like, of course, um, but that just like acknowledgement and like kind of in, in several ways, like throughout your talk and then kind of giving examples with it, like that's just something that um, makes us all so much more accessible to people. And I know you know that, but I just want to honor that. Like, oh, that's... It's, it's a skill. It's, it's a, such skill. a skill. I love when I meet somebody and they're like, oh, but you don't struggle with that at all. And I'm like, boop. <laughs> Excuse me? Are you kidding? Because I definitely still scroll through my selfies and I'm like, mm, I don't look... My double chin looks really cute in that one and less cute in this one. Mm -hmm. uh, it looks like too fat in a bad way in this one. I still mm -hmm. do that shit. I still mm -hmm. catch myself all the time. So you talked a little bit about just this idea of like not merely tolerating or accepting our fatness, but kind of like honoring it and celebrating it. But the way you phrased it was so beautiful, and I'd love for you to share that again. Whenever I'm working with clients who are working through their internalized fat phobia, I try to find ways that we can find gratitude in the fatness because it's difficult to hate something that you have gratitude for. Yeah. <laughs> and like maybe our fatness could have good reasons for existing. And so I use the lens of colonization and white supremacy to put into context why my fatness might have value. Uh, not that it might just have value aesthetically as well, because also, like, we're fucking hot. But also <laughs> yes. that when I think about my ancestral lineages and when I put my, when I think about my body as an heirloom, something that I've inherited, when I look at my body in the context of my family unit, I can see that, like, my whole family is fat. And I see that I belong like, my fatness belongs within this context. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say, like, if we're the only fat one out of our thin family that we don't belong. But I want us to imagine, like, if we were to think back based on wherever we're from in the world. Because especially for folks who are settlers here in the U.S., like, I'm not indigenous to this land. My family has ancestry from somewhere else in the world. And so our bodies are meant to look like different sizes because our bodies are meant to survive different things yeah. from elsewhere in the world. Mm -hmm. Right, there's a reason why Nordic folks look like giants. <laughs> They're built to withstand the cold yeah. and like darkness for six months of the year. When I think about my body as an heirloom, something that I've inherited, I think about how like I would never criticize an antique that I would receive mm -hmm. as an heirloom. Mm -hmm. And every flaw and dent is something that's supposed to be there. Mm -hmm. And there's value and beauty in this thing that has survived. And there's like resilience in this object that has survived, right? There's like strategy there. And I think about my body as heirloom when I think about my ancestral lineage. Like specifically my family comes from, from India, from South Asia. And the people who had to survive in order to have me exist today in 2019 had to survive British colonization. They had to survive famine. They had to survive partition. And so I, I imagine, and both of my parents survived food scarcity. Mm. And so I have to imagine that my body might be fat for the reason that I could possibly withstand genocide should it happen for a second time. I, my body could survive famine if we were to experience that again. And so to find gratitude in the body, to better understand it as something that is not a problem to be fixed or not a disease to be cured but that's something that deserves to exist because body diversity is actually super important. We don't talk about, you know, we, we talk about biodiversity with animals and we say like, you know, no animal should go extinct. Not even like the gross, icky, like insect ones, right? <laughs> and we have to think of ourselves like that too. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Oh, I'm just phrasing it so beautifully too. Mm -hmm. Thanks for telling your story. As, as a matter, matter of fact. fact.
such a great conversation with Sonali. See, aren't they amazing? I'm so glad we were able to share their words and wisdom and vulnerability with you all. We checked in with Sonali and they gave us some updates. They're creating a QTPOC Fat Plus virtual group that just began. Uh, the first cohort, they said, was 12 people from occupied Turtle Island slash North America. We will link all of the things. Uh, so go check out all the great work that Sonali is doing. And, you know, now feels like a good time for Dirt and Discourse. It's time for the Dirt and Discourse. This is where we dive into the excitement and discomfort around relevant pop and cultural happenings. Recently, during the Twin Cities Film Festival, I saw a movie that I really wanted to talk about during Dirt and Discourse because there's a lot to discuss. A Perfect 14 is described as exploring the world of plus-size models fighting to reshape the fashion industry and the beauty standards of society. We were actually invited to see it and watch the trailer together, and we're really not sure about what the message would actually be. I was really hesitant to endorse something before knowing a little bit more about it. Same. And that's why I'm glad I saw it. You know, overall, I'd say the film came across as quite body positive, but not fat positive. Exactly. So Kat did the heavy lifting here. Uh, Lay it out for us, Chico. What did the film cover? It basically was describing the state of plus size modeling, like the plus size modeling industry, as of about like 2014, 2015. It shared a variety of people and perspectives through lots of interviews. And it focused on three models closely kind of throughout the film telling their story. Yeah, I did a little research on the director and writer, uh, Giovanna Morales Vargas. In an interview, she said that the idea actually stemmed from working with one of the featured models in Vancouver, which is Ellie Mayday. And how inspired her... (laughs) 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 I love it. She was inspired. Yeah, she was was not inspired. She was inspired by the way, like, she was determined to be a curvy-bodied person. And here I'm quoting that, quote-unquote, looked like a model. So Giovanna started looking into plus-size models and really thought there was a story to be told. So she brought it to her producer and editor, James Earl O'Brien. They knew each other from film school. And they kind of looked around and they were like, this story has not been told yet. Like, there's no ground covered with this. So let's go forward. Let's make this happen. I think it was a really interesting and intention-grabbing film. Uh, It did a really good job of laying out the often kind of misguided perspectives that the fashion industry and media, particularly print magazines, have about plus-size models and consumers. Because, okay, they had like several interviews with editors from widely known fashion magazines where they're just like spelling all the details out in troublesome detail. Yikes. There were also some places where I was like pleasantly surprised because you know like I assume the worst um, I but love I was this. wrong yeah so like when when I saw the trailer I was worried that there was it was this film was going to be some kind of like Ashley Graham glorifying movie without proper critique or nuance and I was pleasantly surprised and relieved that there was a bit that actually explicitly referenced her and her position on the word plus size and her desire you know to distance herself from the plus size community after rising to fame on the dollars made from advertising to all the fat people and all the plus size retailers. Um, so, you know, like this is a bit of a thing for me. Um, but I was happy to see that there was a large part of the conversation um, related to like the term plus size. And there was a moment when someone was interviewed about her in particular, mm-hmm. um, or it felt like it was, it was like her perspective without naming her. And it was like verbatim exactly what I would say. And I was like, okay, glad you put that, you know, pulled part me in back here. in. Yes, yeah. yeah. And we know that Ashley Graham is like the best litmus test for you particularly Kat and obviously I know your feelings about her but to bring it back to Lindy West who we talked about earlier in her new book um, like one point she says that 
you know, well, a lot of people talk about Ashley's fat zigzagging, right? Yeah. And she mentioned something, I'm paraphrasing here, that like seeing Ashley Graham on the cover of Sports Illustrated is not doing anything for fat people. Mm. It's not doing anything for the 36 size person who needs a outfit to go to a wedding or right. to a job interview right. or anything like that. And I think that was the kind of concern I had for this movie. You know, how is it going to approach the fashion industry? And does it even go beyond the confines of fashion to the everyday person? Yeah, right. And so, okay, there were some really good parts of the film, and some of those things were addressed, to be sure. Um, But there were some big yikes for me that I think are worthy of some discourse. (laughs) Okay, so, um, in order. One, uh, it highlighted white women's voices over women of color. Two, it made inappropriate comparisons to racial segregation. Three, it didn't properly interrogate the way these models are still upholding traditional beauty standards around size and, related to this, made some unnecessary references to weight. Oh, boy. That's a lot to cover. Um, You already numbered it. So, I mean, honestly, let's kick it off with number one. Okay. So there were many voices represented through the film. Um, There were, so it kind of focused on three stories of plus-size models, and they were Ellie Mayday, like you mentioned, from Canada, Laura Wells from Australia, and Kerosene Deluxe from the Netherlands. So each of them had very different experiences within the modeling industry. So there was diversity there in those experiences, but they were all small, fat, white-presenting women. I wish that they would have included more models of color in these main storylines rather than just like in quick interview snippets because those felt in some ways like an afterthought. The story was also very centered on Ellie, um, beginning with like her modeling career and then battling cancer. She died earlier this year, and the movie was intended in some ways to be a tribute to her. So I also learned in the Q&A after the film what you talked about, Saraya, that the director um, was friends with her, and that kind of informed why she was mm. such a big part of this. Makes that sense. really put that focus in perspective. And while I liked the parts that included Ellie, I wish that her storyline had been a little bit shorter, just like in the larger context of the film. Like, uh, it was so interesting to me, but we had a whole lot to cover, and I felt like it just focused on that quite a bit. Sure. So in addition to the three main models that were interviewed, there were several shorter interviews from many plus-size models and fashion influencers, as well as some body-positive advocates. But most of these interviews seem pretty dated. Like, I think what must have happened, or maybe that happens with, like, a lot of independent films. You know, like, they capture footage, and then, like, it gets released, like, a lot later. Funny you should say that. So I was doing a little bit of research and I saw that there was a release from womeninhollywood.com referencing the production of A Perfect 14 back in 2015 Mm. with the intended release of 2016. So I mean I imagine it's really costly to self-produce and get this out and about but this also fits perfectly with what you were experiencing. Okay yeah that information makes perfect sense like while I was sitting here watching it I was feeling like wow this is like really situated in that kind of time like 2015 2016 right when Lane Bryant released their I Am No Angel campaign Mm, like I felt like I was there and all of the info felt very accurate to that moment, but maybe not so accurate overall, you know? So in addition to the interviews, they kind of pulled more like current time things in. They showed a lot of ads and photos highlighting plus size models. Our fave Lizzo was even shown in one of her swimsuits for all campaigns. I got the impression that they were added later, maybe to like help things seem more relevant. Um, P.S. Gavo Campo, uh, who you might know as the mixed fat chick, or excuse me, just hashtag, no, not hashtag, at sign, mish, mix, <laughs> You love chick. your hashtags from I before. Do. They had to come back <laughs> so in. So on to it. Um, but, so her handle is at mixed fat chick on Insta um, and on Facebook. I follow her there, too. She was interviewed very briefly, too briefly, um, but she had one of the best quotes in the film, and I wish I had it verbatim, but um, she was, like, talking about how companies might be embracing plus sizes or talking about body positivity 
society, but that we need to remember that they are not the ones who started this. And she says, we started this. Fat women on the internet started this revolution. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so we covered that. Let's get Mm -hmm. into the second point. Inappropriate comparisons to racial segregation. This scares me. Um, Yeah, okay, so in two instances, the film tried to make comparisons between size and race. And while I agree that looking at oppression through a lens with which you might be familiar can be a tool for understanding other forms of oppression, I think it's important to stay away from direct comparisons. I also do not think that the way plus-size models and plus-size shoppers are treated can be compared to racial segregation in the United States. Uh-huh. It's just, like, not fair or appropriate, in my opinion, to liken the stigma of that plus-size models have faced in their field to having drink to having to drink out of a separate water fountain. Yeah. Or, like, yeah, okay, I might have to go to the back of a store to find the plus-size section, or I might not even be able to find anything in my size at all in some stores, But that is so far from the marginalization and violence black people have experienced in this country during segregation and still in many ways today. I just think it was such an irresponsible comparison to make. Mm -hmm. That's really also a really interesting way to frame that understanding because it sounds like not one person that was part of this production was from the U.S. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, So I wonder if that's why it felt like such a misstep as well, trying to forge a metaphor without that queer perspective on what doing so means Mm -hmm. and not being a person of color, a black person, African-American person from that U.S. perspective, too, just feels like, whew, you got to you gotta swerve on that. Like, you can't put that into it. Right. And if memory serves, like, this quote, like, it started from a quote that was mentioned by someone who is probably from the U.S., probably a person of color, based on how they presented, but, like, they really leaned mm. into it in the production, and I thought that that was not smart. Um, and, you know, I what I think they were trying to do is something that I came to understand more like throughout the film, which is that, you know, plus size models really have a tough go of it in the industry in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. I just think you cannot make a direct comparison to racial segregation. Here, 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 here. OK, babe, I want you to bring it home. What are the final thoughts on the film? Okay, so in some ways, I felt like the title of Perfect 14 was meant to be tongue-in-cheek, you know? But I'm not sure if that really landed. So kind of toward the end, there's a scene where Ellie's being measured at a modeling agency, and she explains that she's more of like a 10-12, size 10 or 12, after recovering from surgery. Um, Because, you know, this, uh, we talk, there's a lot of talk about, like, her illness, battling cancer. So she mentions that she's like a 10-12, and she's met by a response saying that she's a, quote, perfect 14. Hmm. And I think that, like, helped inform, you know, like, the, the title. But what's not shared explicitly here or when we hear from the Australian model is that when we're talking about a U.K. size 14, it's a U.S. size 10. Mm, and I mean, I saw this film in the U.S. There are lots of U.S. fashion folks in the film. I just wonder if the average U.S. viewer would really get that nuance. Uh-huh. It should also be noted that they gave unnecessary time and detail to Ellie's weight loss due to her illness. I mean, it totally makes sense that it would be addressed, but there's like no need for us to see her on the scale, to hear hear her previous weight and current weight, like the numbers, or to see what were essentially before and after photos. Hmm, Interesting. Okay, so after listening to all this, my takeaway thought is that, especially since I'm enmeshed in the research process of my program, I can't help but think of this as like what so much of research is, building precedent. Mm-hmm. So the story hadn't been covered. There's no documentary like this out there already. Mm-hmm. And it seems like this documentary allows for so much more to be done. It's demonstrating the gaps in culture and areas for future exploration and continued storytelling just based on everything that you shared right there. 
Yeah, I hear that. I think that's a great way to frame it. And, you know, I am happy this movie was made. I think they missed a lot. But also, like, how can you cover everything when there's so much to share? Mm-hmm. And, and that's the dirt and discourse. Thank you for listening to our penultimate episode of season two. That's right. The next episode is our last of the season. Big thanks to our sponsor, Superfit Hero. Remember, you can use code FAT to save 15% on your own Superfits at www.superfithero.com. Don't forget, our season two finale celebration is December 1st at Ladonia from 3 to 6 p.m. We would love to see you there. Please subscribe, rate, and review our podcast wherever you listen. You can catch us soon for our season finale of Matter Matter of Fat. Fat. Okay, you're going to edit out my heavy breathing. No. (laughs) We are. Oh, don't take it out of the mic. (laughs) She's faking. Everyone, she's faking. (laughs)